Hey, Shosh. Hey, Kelly. Are you pumped for today? It's the episode you've been waiting for. Oh, my gosh. Is this the episode where I finally get to talk about my love for Section 230 of Title 47 of the U.S. Code that was enacted as part of the Communications Decency Act of 1996, which is Title 5 of the Telecommunications Act of 1996? Yeah. Also love the enthusiasm. You must have that title memorized, right? Perhaps I do love Section 230. It's one of my favorite laws in general and especially about the internet. And I don't like laws a lot. I think a lot of them are badly crafted, but this one, oh. I know you're obsessed with it. And I'm really glad you feel that way because I have a surprise for you. Oh my gosh. Since today's episode's all about the internet and we want to talk about Section 230, I couldn't think of a better guest to have on than you, my co host, Shoshana Weissman. Kelly, I'm speechless. This is a true honor. I had no idea. There's so many people I'd like to thank. First and foremost, myself, the best person in the world. My parents for getting dial-up in our house when I was young so I could use the internet too much. Everyone at R Street for supporting my dreams of keeping the internet free and full of sloths. And really all you listeners out there who have come back week after week to get us to this point. That was a great Oscar speech. I didn't even have to play you off. <laughs> so it's going to be fun for sure. Shall we play the opening theme music, introduce ourselves, get right to it? I think the music's already playing. I'm Kelly Pierce, an award-winning journalist and digital media associate at R Street. I'm Shoshana Weissman, director of digital media and the monster in Kelly's basement. And this is Red Tape. All right, Shosh, you're literally in my basement right now. We don't actually record in the same room. We record in two different places. And right now, that means you in my basement. It's great. I flew from D.C. to here to hike. And you were kind enough in exchange for 12 bags of Reese's to let me stay in your basement. That's an absolutely true story. I have no problem with you being in my house, using it as base camp for all your hiking adventures. And also, yes, she did buy me off with a bunch of Reese's. I'm a pretty cheap date. Before we get into your interview about Section 230, for those who don't know, what's Section 230 and why should I care? Oh, man, this is the law that basically makes it so other people aren't responsible for your illegal speech. So if you post something on Twitter, you're responsible. Twitter isn't responsible. If I go comment something horrible on your mom's blog and the comments, she's not liable, which is good. I'm liable. And also it stops these companies from being sued over this if it can't be their speech to begin with. So it's a law that says that what I put on the Internet's my speech and therefore, third-party platforms, like my mom's theoretical blog, hosting that speech aren't liable for what I say. Yeah, exactly. The basic way I think about it is that it's a law clarifying personal responsibility. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But before we get into that, I want to let our listeners know that after you and I talk about Section 230, I'll also be speaking with Josh Withrow, R Street's resident fellow for technology and innovation, about child privacy laws on the Internet and how so many of them, while well-intentioned, can lead to really bad policy that leads to more harm for everyone than good. But first... The woman who made all the cool kids talk about Section 230, Shosh. Oh my gosh, I'm ready. 
great. When you talk about something like limited liability for social media companies, folks usually conservative, but some on the left too, get legitimately angry that their speech is being censored through content moderation decisions. Why would it be worse for them if Section 230 goes away? So this is something that they don't tend to think about a lot. Like Ben Shapiro exists because of social media. There's so many social media stars that wouldn't have existed without it. And it puts more power back in the hands of the people. Before social media, it was like you had Fox News, you had CNN, you had MSNBC, you had the New York Times. But if you weren't a columnist, if you didn't have your own show, you didn't have this network like you do today. I only exist in the form I do because of social media. Like people follow me for sloths and regulatory reform, like (laughs) pre-Twitter and pre-social media. I couldn't have gotten much of a following. People might think it was funny and I might've had some followers, but it's fascinating that it works this way. And the big reason is just because it takes power back from the hands of the relatively few who had it before. It doesn't mean that social media companies won't make mistakes, that they won't be biased, but there's a constitutional First Amendment right to bias. That has nothing to do with Section 230. You take it away, they're still allowed to be biased. Like, that's not what that is. People often get mad at 230 while they're really mad at the First Amendment, which is really disappointing because we shouldn't be hating on free speech. You want that ability for people on the left and right to be able to have platforms, for people who really want just free open speech to have platforms. You want all of the above and let what succeeds succeed. But I think it's just so naive to think that we'd have a better ecosystem for conservatives without social media. So many of the contacts I have on all sides of the aisle, but especially on the right, exist only because of it. And when companies fail and annoy us, we're going to leave them and we'll find better companies. That's how markets work. I do think that oftentimes, as you're alluding to, social media is the new town square and a company should be held accountable if someone's unfairly shadow banned or deplatformed or they're reach restricted. So for them, this is a First Amendment violation if that happens. What do you say in defense of Section 230 in that case? The First Amendment doesn't apply to platforms. The First Amendment applies to the government. If the government were running a platform and restricted their speech, yeah, you can sue the government. But someone restricting your speech online on their platform, that's their right to do it. And Section 230 has nothing to do with that. Before Section 230 was enacted, moderation was still in any form, whether it's banning, restricting, promoting, all of that was fully legal and constitutionally protected speech on their platforms that wasn't theirs. So the reason it actually got enacted, and this is one of my favorite stories in policy, is that the Wolf of Wall Street sued Prodigy, a very old platform in the 90s. And some guy just commented on Prodigy in the platform and said, hey, Stratton Oakmontis, they're scammers, they're frauds, all this stuff. And even though he was right, it's liable to say that if you don't have proof. So Stratton Oakmont took him to court and took Prodigy to court. And the judge was like, yeah, this is liable. And because you say, Prodigy, that you moderate your platform and try to keep it family friendly, well, this one piece of content on your entire platform isn't family friendly, so you're also liable. And what's key there is the judge was saying, oh, try to keep your users safe. And if you fail on one piece of illegal content, then you're out of here. You're going to be liable for it. But don't try to protect your users and don't try to take illegal stuff off your platform and you're fine. But it's so funny to think about that. One, the guy was actually right and he was a whistleblower. So under the previous law, it was just easier to suppress whistleblowers because I'm not sure that Stratton Oakmont would have sued if they could only go after that one guy. But if they can go after the platform, that's where the money is. And that's where the, hey, if you dare allow other speech on here, 
we're going to sue you. And that threat's real. Section 230 is why we can have negative reviews. Otherwise, businesses, doctors would all sue to take down negative reviews, even if it went nowhere in court. So back to here, you still have all these different platforms you can engage in from Facebook to Instagram, Twitter, blue skies becoming a thing. But it's so wild to me that any conservative would think that the previous way things worked was better when you had very limited outlets for conservatives. There's still tons of conservatives on Twitter and there were under prior leadership too. Absolutely. And I will say it's not just conservatives though. There are people that are clearly on the left side of the fence, socialists and progressives who have the same argument that they've been shadow banned to platform because they've criticized those in power. But there's something that's called the moderator's dilemma that you've written about. What is it and how do government rules around this stuff make it harder for new companies, maybe with better moderation policies or practices, to enter the market? So basically, before Section 230, the state of affairs was the moderator's dilemma. And it meant that either platforms touch everything so that way they wouldn't be liable for anything at all on there, or they moderated absolutely nothing so courts wouldn't assume they were liable for anything. A lot of people think moderation is all judgment-based calls. Oh, do I like this? Do I not like this? But there's racism. There's hate speech. And hate speech is legal speech, totally legal speech, but it allows them to take that off. Threats, violence, uh, child exploitation, terrorism. Terrorist speech is fully legal content. You can say pro-terrorist things and you're protected by the First Amendment, but they want to take that stuff down. And even if they tried to take down illegal speech, there's often no way to know. Like in the Prodigy case, calling the Wolf of Wall Street a scammer and a fraud, that was proven by a court to be liable, even though it was true. There's all these different kinds of scenarios where you basically want them to have that discretion to create good platforms. Otherwise, you become 4chan. And even 4chan moderates. And it's still just this awful, awful place. Without the moderator's dilemma, you either have incentive to do nothing and that way avoid liability. Or the other side of that is you have to moderate everything so that it's just like rainbows and sunshine. If anyone says anything mean, that could be liable and you just don't know. So you want to take that down. And that's just not a healthy place for the internet. It doesn't mean what we have now is perfect. And it doesn't mean it can't be better. But Section 230 isn't the problem. In most cases, the issues people have are just sadly with the First Amendment. Also, though, you hit on this sort of public safety component that people are worried about when it comes to the interwebs. You have child exploitation, like you said, terrorism. Those are really top of mind. And we got to point out child exploitation, terrorism, these things are already illegal. It's just about how do we fight those in the new era. And that's going to be coming up with policies that really have nothing to do with Section 230. I do think that Section 230 can also help us fight crime, as you have explained with the Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, yeah. It allows whistleblowers to flourish. Me Too could not have happened without Section 230. Me Too stuff is effectively liable until it's proved in court. You can go and say, oh, well, you don't have actual proof of that, so you're just lying. But if, you know, Weinstein and others were able to sue the platforms, they absolutely would have to shut them up and shut up their opposers. And even when it comes to government, you want to make sure that government dissent is allowed, that you're able to have that kind of speech. But I think one key thing is one whistleblowers, a lot of the speech is effectively liable until it's proven. And it flourishes with 230 since you can't see the platforms. And also giving them the flexibility to go after the bad actors and even maybe the platforms, you know, help monitor it, send it to the government. Like that can be very useful. There needs to always be more coordination, but there's also 
it can run up against bigger problems. Like sometimes government wants a little bit too much information. Maybe they want the exact location of someone for whom they don't have a warrant. And then the government will yell at them saying, oh, they're not giving us this information. And it's like, okay, well, due process is still a thing. There's a lot of complexity in it where you want them to go after those exploiting children when you have evidence that, hey, that this, this is where this is happening. But you also don't want them to have the ability to go after people for just any reason, that it, it should be when there's real concern and real threat. Government will abuse its power. It's a hell of a position to be put in. And the former Twitter administration did a really good job with pushing back. And different companies have different standards, but there's this push and pull between helping law enforcement with legitimate threats and not letting them go too far. We've talked a lot about some of the issues that people have with Section 230. What are some of the good things about it? Specifically, how does it protect free speech online? One is it allows moderation and it allows the internet we know today. Wikipedia, all trails, ZocDoc, like everyone's thinking Google, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. But for me, it's the reason I'm able to find good doctor reviews. I mean, I have seven plus autoimmune diseases. But when I started, it took me eight gastroenterologists to find one who believed me and who didn't call me crazy. Wow. And crazy is their word, not mine. But these days, I'll go to ZocDoc and I'll look at reviews and I'll figure out, okay, what do they say about this doctor? Does this doctor listen? Is she attentive? Is he going to be dismissive? And I've been able to find some really, really great doctors. People have recommended supplements to me and I'll check the interactions and go for those. But without Section 230, if I give someone medical advice or if they give me medical advice, a lot of it would constitute giving medical advice without a license, which infringes on like doctor licenses. And people could go after me if they wanted in some of these cases, I guess. But it stops them from going after the platforms. I actually found out I had fibromyalgia when I Googled something like endometriosis and getting sick all the time. And then I saw this forum where everyone was giving each other medical advice that would definitely like be unlicensed practice of medicine. But that's how I found out I had fibromyalgia because I'd never been able to figure out why I was getting sick all the time. And someone said, yeah, these diseases often go together. So go to a rheumatologist. I looked up reviews. I found one. He was really helpful. He's like, yeah, you super have fibromyalgia. But without Section 230, I don't know that any of this would have happened. I would have had to go through so many more doctors. I don't know that I would have bothered if it wasn't working, let alone like I can use all trails to look for comments and see if there have been bears in the area, if there's known to be grizzlies, stuff like that. So I don't die alone in the woods. <laughs> you know, there's endless potential. You know, it's not to say there aren't problems online. I just think that most of the time when people are mad at Section 230, they're actually just mad at the First Amendment, which is a larger problem. Why is Section 230 so vital? Oh, man. Section 230 is the reason we have the internet we do today. And a lot of people think you can just edit it. Like, oh, we'll just exclude this or exclude this. But that's death by a thousand cuts. And I tend to liken it more to an avocado than a bowl of M&Ms. Like people think, oh, take this exception out, take this exception out. You still have this whole bowl of M&Ms, but it ends up being a lot more like an avocado. You cut it open. You don't have very long and it all starts to rot because let's say you have an exemption in Section 230 where you can sue platforms if they moderate political content. Okay, well, every racist is going to say that his content is actually political and then that goes to court. I mean, without this law, we wouldn't have all trails. We wouldn't have Wikipedia. We wouldn't have any social media in the forums we do. We wouldn't have the depth and breadth of online expression we do and the ability of someone to just pop up a new platform whenever they wanted, which I think is an incredible thing. So I think it's really important that people take Section 230 seriously and don't hand wave it away. 
It's also cool that it was a bipartisan victory that Senator Ron Wyden, Representative Chris Cox, or then Representative Wyden, I forget that he was <laughs> a representative back then, <laughs> created this. And I think they had a lot of wisdom in mind with it. And I think we need to go by that principle in the future, making sure that liability is assigned to the person who is doing the bad thing. When people go after Section 230 for allowing bias or for allowing content they don't like, it's really scary sometimes to me to see how often people are just angry at the First Amendment. And Section 230 is a really good law, and I don't think laws are often crafted very well, but it's a law that really let the internet become what it is today. Thanks for breaking it all down for us here, Shosh. Anytime, Kelly. Am I free to go now? No, I still need you to help me co-host the rest of the episode. Oh, yeah, I forgot. I got so into talking about Section 230 that I forgot. We have a whole second half of the show where you're speaking with someone who's not me, Josh Withrow, about the internet and child privacy laws. I know you talk about that, too, but it's time for someone else to do the heavy lifting. Josh can get swole with the heavy lifting on this issue. (laughs) Let's take a break. Red Tape from R Street. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Okay, Kelly. I think the connection is pretty clear, but why did you choose Josh with Roe and child privacy laws on the internet as your second guest today? I have a kiddo. I've talked about that on the show before, but it seemed like a lot of laws were being passed around the country, red states and blue, that were aimed at the internet. And protecting children was always the excuse. But when you looked at what these bills actually do, as a parent, I got scared. Yeah, it's really frustrating because I know that the intent is good in most cases. Lawmakers are really trying to protect kids. And we're right now in Spencer Cox's state of Utah. And I love Spencer Cox, but I don't love his idea (laughs) for how to protect kids online. And this is an important conversation to listen to, even if you never, ever want kids, because what we're doing right now might take everyone's freedom away. And there's a ton of danger that comes from it that I know Josh is going to talk about. How does this actually make everything worse for all of us and children's safety online? Here's my conversation with Josh Withrow. All right. So, Josh, why do you want children looking at porn while they try to join ISIS? (laughs) You know, it's funny, but I get asked that question seriously a lot. Like, why is it that you want to expose children to all the terrible things online? And the answer is, I don't. Don't have kids yet, but God willing, I would like to. And this is something I think about a lot. There is a lot of terrible stuff on the internet that I absolutely do not want my son or daughter to see. And I absolutely want to do what I can to make sure that they have a safe and productive use of computers in the internet. But I also want to make sure that in protecting our kids, we don't pass policies and laws that fundamentally destroy the way social media and the internet works. And unfortunately, in a lot of cases, legislation that sounds good to keep the kids safe has a lot of unintended consequences, but lawmakers in their haste to do something for the children don't stop and actually think about how things work. I asked that question to you and Jess, but you really brought up a great point because this conversation tends to devolve into that, right? Just pointing fingers and accusing folks of wanting to harm children. And I want to say, as the parent of a young child, I'm also the daughter of a retired teacher, we want to stress that threats to children's safety and mental well-being do exist online. Absolutely. And hey, they existed in my time. I'm just of the right age that my parents first got an internet connection at our house when I was 10 years old. So I've had had internet access for most of my conscious life. And there were threats and problems and bad things on the internet back then too. It was different. We didn't have the social media platforms. We didn't have the incredible level of community and connectivity 
quite to the same degree that we do now, but it's always been a thing. All of the problems with people and society that happen in the real world manifest themselves digitally as you would expect that they would. And we absolutely do have to worry about things like bullying, harassment, pornographic content, and many other sorts of things that rear their ugly head online. Absolutely. And for those that don't have children and who don't ever foresee themselves having children, this issue still matters because if a child sees things that they're not old enough to process yet, it can really lead to mental health issues. And if you have a child with mental health issues, that child could grow up to be an adult with a lot of problems that society will have to fix. So it is an important topic to talk about. But as you brought up, Josh, in the race to protect children, that can lead to really bad policy that does more harm than good. What are some of the worst things you've seen states do in the name of protecting kids online? Well, let's take the first policy that is common to a lot of pieces of legislation, both at the state and the federal level, some of which are passed, which is this idea that to make all social media sites, or in some cases, all websites, have to verify exactly the age of everybody coming to their platform. And you stop and think, okay, well, if we want to protect kids, that makes a lot of sense. They should know who the kids are, and so that way they know how to better protect them. This is where one of those theory practice things comes into practice in order to verify and find out who all the kids are on your platform. You have to verify the age of everybody on your platform. You can't just run this by just the kids. This isn't like a store where you can see and be like, oh, you look like a kid. Clearly, I need to see your ID. <laughs> and the way you either do that is you either have to have people cough up some sort of documentary identification. Like in the case of Utah, they literally contemplated having people send a copy of their government ID. Or you use some sort of intrusive technology like facial recognition technology or face scanning that supposedly only scans your face but doesn't identify you. Or some sites have you send in a selfie or a video of yourself so that they can get a read on you and figure out if you're most likely not a minor. All of these things are, one, they're intrusive, and two, they add an extra layer of friction to you actually just being able to access and use the internet. But most importantly, most of these technologies are hugely intrusive to your privacy. And in a lot of cases, they also get very close to the line or even over the line of just de-anonymizing the internet experience. And that's really important because the ability to just go around pseudonymously or anonymously online is one of the fundamental things that makes the internet great and sort of been baked into the architecture of it. People don't realize that pushing for age verification could fundamentally transform sort of our ability to speak and act and interact on the internet without associating our real names with it. With parents, they need to know that requiring social media companies to collect that data ensures that social media company has it. And that opens up another can of worms or maybe even several, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of twofold. One is the cybersecurity privacy risk. You're now asking these social media platforms to collect personally identifiable information, the kind of information that is actually valuable to hackers if they get it, because they can use it to impersonate you and open up accounts in your name and all that kind of stuff. So in Utah's case, they actually required the sites to store this data. So not only to collect it, but then not delete it and keep it stored, which is just asking for a hack. Any cybersecurity professional will tell you that when it comes to especially personally identifiable information, the fastest, easiest way to make sure that you're not hacked is don't store the data if you don't need it. And so some of these laws completely counter that. The other thing, too, is that there is actually value especially in the case of kids in some instances, to at least add a barrier between immediately knowing who each person is. Because if you are a nasty person who is going after kids, a child predator or somebody who wants to advertise something to kids that they shouldn't be seeing, it's harder to do that if you don't know who the kids are right away. If you create that layer so that the kid doesn't have to identify themselves unless they want to, 
makes it harder for people to target them. I don't want my son using social media until after he's married, right? <laughs> but I also don't want his information stored on any company's platform or with any company unless I say so. I also hear a lot too, Josh, about politicians wagging their fingers at social media companies' algorithms. And they're blaming them for a whole host of problems. What's an algorithm? And does it put a bunch of age-inappropriate stuff in kids' feeds? All an algorithm is is a line of code that tells a program to do things. You put an input, the algorithm spits something else out. In the case of social media, they use very complicated algorithms to recommend content to you, often based upon your personal likes and needs. And as, as you use a platform more, it learns more about you and then recommends you more of the kind of stuff that it thinks that you want to consume. Interestingly enough, I mean, anything that displays you content is an algorithm. So when you switch Facebook to just most recent so that it's just listing everybody, all of your friends posts in chronological order, that's also an algorithm. It's just a very simple one, as opposed to the one that they use to feed you videos that you don't care about and whatever post it thinks that you might like. And lawmakers tend to blame the algorithms for feeding things like overconsumption of social media or for targeting people with content that might be harmful to them. The simple fact of the matter is that the recommendation algorithms that Instagram, TikTok, and all of these sites use, it's sort of garbage in, garbage out, right? It will recommend more of what you want. So if you're searching for the kind of things that are maybe not great for you mentally or that are harmful, it's possible that it can reinforce that. But that's sort of a user-guided experience. Otherwise, I look for like videos of people's dogs and videos of chefs cooking, and that's what I get fed in my feed constantly. It is a user-created experience that users are responsible for curating. The algorithm is not responsible for what you do. We all have an interest in seeing the next generation grow up healthy, mentally strong. But how do you balance that with these laws that many people also feel are infringing on parental rights? That's a great way to frame that the way that I would frame that. But lawmakers often couch these laws in terms of empowering parents. These laws are very often telling parents in advance how lawmakers think they ought to be regulating their kids' use online and forcing them to do things that parents otherwise might not do, like having to provide parental verification for every kid's account, like having to, as a parent, submit your ID to a social media site to prove that you're this kid's parents before you create them a profile. The Center for, um, oh, I'm blanking on the name. So the center is the Center for Growth and Opportunity. Thank you. I can't <laughs> believe I blanked on that. Oh, don't worry. I've blanked many times. <laughs> and I've been reporting live on radio, so no worries there. The CGO at Utah State University ran a great poll of parents asking them, do you feel comfortable having to identify yourself to a social media site as a parent in order for your kid to create an account? Like 70% of respondents said, no, I wouldn't like to do that. The government in the state of Utah decided that whether they like it or not, all parents are going to have to do that anyway. It's actually an additional burden now on parents that they might not have wanted. You've also made the point beyond parental rights to not make surveillance of kids the default position. What do you mean by that? And what harm does that thinking really cause? I think there's a fundamental sort of respect between the kid and the parents that is violated when you make it the norm that kids always know that everything that they're doing is being watched. It sort of forecloses the opportunity of ever having a give and take trust relationship 
there where, you know, some kids, they're getting into trouble and they're acting out and they might need to be watched more because they're making bad decisions for themselves and you want to know everything that they're doing as a parent. Other kids are pretty self-maintenanced and it may do them better psychologically to sort of reinforce their independence and their growth as an individual to sort of let them do their own thing unless they're doing something wrong, right? Every kid is different. Every family situation is different. And I think making the default on these sites that everything is being monitored in real time, such a really bad precedent. And I, I worry about what it does to the mentality of kids as well to normalize the feeling that somebody is always watching everything that you do. But let's discuss the good. There's some evidence that social media is good for mental health. There's been tons of studies. This is something that's a well-funded sort of area of research now because of all the concerns about social media and kids. And if you go out and look at all of the medical and scientific and psychological studies that have been done, there is no scientific consensus that social media is a net negative for kids at all because of the positives that balances out all of the negative anecdotes that you talk about. Social media is a great way for kids to build a sense of community and connection with other people, particularly if maybe they live in a small town or live in a place where fewer people share their interests. They can go and find communities that share some of their same interests and values online. And it often provides a creative outlet that they wouldn't have had. They can build an audience for themselves, start kind of becoming entrepreneurial at a younger age by putting their talents, their goods out there. And interestingly, even in some of the, the reports that have been uh, put out there as proving that social media is bad for kids, you remember the Facebook whistleblower, Frances Haugen, and she was testifying before Congress and they said that this was proof that social media is just harmful for kids. And if you actually looked at the research that she was citing that Facebook had done, it showed that, yeah, there was something like a quarter of teens who self-reported that they thought that social media was a net negative. And something like 60% of them or more, I think it was actually more than that, said that they thought that social media was a net good. Wow. But of course, the media doesn't ever focus on that part. They find the anecdotes, which do exist, and I'm not trying to pretend that they don't. Uh, they find the anecdotes of the bullying and the harassment and the negative experiences that social media can enable and focus only on those instead of the fact that social media is a useful tool that helps a lot of us stay connected with our families and friends and improves our lives. And something also to keep in mind is that there are parental controls in these social media platforms, a lot of them. Some of these came about because parents were asking for them. Yeah, this is something I've been repeatedly putting out there. And it's important for two reasons to note that these parental controls already exist. The first reason is because a lot of these parental controls that are built in both at your hardware at the device level and also at the software level on like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter are more effective and powerful at granularly controlling what your kids experience is online than any of these laws would force these companies to create. These tools already exist to very, very in detail control what kind of content, what websites your kids can go to, how much screen time they're allowed to have. A lot of this is already built into your devices. And to the extent that it's not built into your devices, you can download software that is specifically parental control software to make these things happen. It may be that a lot of parents aren't aware of the level of control they already have within their own devices in order to make their kids safer online. And that might be an education gap that does need filling. And maybe there's even a policy solution there in terms of like education and making sure people know that's out there. But there's also a legal reason why this is important. Because all of the software and all of these parental controls are already out there, the courts have been pretty consistent in ruling that even up to the Supreme Court level, that doing things like making access to social media contingent on parental controls or mandatory age verification that, that compromises people's identity is unconstitutional because it's a restraint on anonymous speech or a restraint on kids' access 
to, to speech platforms that is more restrictive than existing solutions that are already out there. Justices have specifically cited the existence of parental controls as a reason why it's not justifiable to mandate these things from the government level. So many parents obviously don't know that they exist because there's so much freak out, but also that the courts have said, hey, look, A, these exist, but B, we don't want to take away constitutional rights even from our youngest citizens. It really is important there. However, there are many parents who are like, I'm not going to give my kid access to social media ever. I joked earlier, you know, I don't want my kid on social media till after he's married. And I'm only half joking there, right? Is that really the right strategy? Is that really possible? Or can we teach kids what to do if they see something wrong online? I think it's like with everything else in life. Like there are risks that are inherent with allowing your kid access to social media, whether supervised or not. And it's up to every parent to evaluate what that means to them and what level of access that they're going to allow. It's kind of like the same thing with free-range parenting. A lot of these laws, I think, are analogous to the sort of people who are calling the police on somebody for letting their kid wander out in the neighborhood without an adult. And I'm not making the case that you should be a free-range parent and let your kid just do anything unsupervised online. I wouldn't do that with my kids. I'm not advocating for that. But I think there's an analogy there in that what do we do to keep our kids safe and help them learn how to be safe, responsible individuals in the real world? We teach them things. We talk to them. Don't play in traffic. Don't wander into the woods alone. Check in at home from time to time. Be home by sunset. Don't get into that stranger's car, especially if he offers you candy. You know, like all of these life lessons that we impart to our kids to help them be safe in a world that is not perfectly safe. And, you know, our kids are going to grow up to be adults in an information saturated world where computers and the internet are going to be central to their success in life. And at some point in time, they're going to have to learn how to navigate that, including the pitfalls, and how to manage that with their lives and their mental health and be responsible citizens. And the question is, at what age are they ready to start absorbing that? And that's subjective. If you're talking to a parent and they're worried about social media, what do you say to them to maybe calm their fears? I would say, one, remember that there's already an entire generation of kids that grew up extremely online and we've turned out reasonably fine. But two... (laughs) You know, the tools are out there. It's part of the responsibility of being parents is that we have to take a little bit of time to inform ourselves of the tools that are available to us. And I'm always happy to point people to what those are and try to help them navigate this complex world of controlling their kids' access to the internet and what they can see. But don't be afraid of it. There's a lot of wonders on the internet. I learned many of the skills that have defined my life on the internet. Take the good with the bad, learn to protect them as best as you can. And it's the same as anything else in life. So I like that Josh hit a lot of different sides of the issue here because it is really complex. Like I myself wrote 12,000 words on this intending to write 2,000 words max. It's a really, really big issue. And I think Josh did a good job of hitting a lot of sides of it. Yeah, absolutely. And folks, you got to check out Shoshana's series. I mean, she really looked at, like Josh, all the angles on it. And that's at rstreet.org. And I also think it's good that Josh stressed how much we all want to protect kids online. Again, even if you never want kids, we have an interest as a society in making sure they're protected. Children who access material that's too mature for their age level, they can develop into adults with problems that society as a whole deals with. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. And if we get the details of these laws wrong, which it seems like we are, freedom of speech is curbed in a big way and kids will be even 
more vulnerable online. I'm very passionate about that. (laughs) Yeah. And I think a lot of these laws trying to protect kids very earnestly are just not going to work the way they intend. And that really matters because When it comes to kids, you have to get the details, right? It's the most important to do it then. And there can be, unfortunately, sometimes the least incentive to at those times. Absolutely. We do have to think of the children, but we also have to think bigger. And people can fight back against these companies. A lot of times government's coming in and saying, oh, well, we need to protect you from the big bad Twitter, right? Actually, People have fought back, and Josh talked about that in terms of putting parental controls and things. The market has responded to people, and I think we forget about that as well. Oh, yeah. And like even past Supreme Court opinions have talked about parental filters can avoid certain First Amendment problems while being more effective. And I think that's still true today because you can have filters at all different levels of technology so that your kid is guarded in the right way for you. And it's going to be different for everyone. Absolutely. Well, Shosh, how are you feeling? You talked a lot today. I talk a lot, a lot of days. I like talking, especially about Section 230, but I'm very ready for Shoshana quality hiking marmot time. And I hope you get as much hiking and marmot and whatever time you want here in Utah. And thankfully, you can talk about it online, even if you say something completely wrong, which To be clear, did you say anything completely wrong on today's episode? Not completely. We'll have to leave that to the fact checkers. Hey, fact checkers, if you (laughs) hear anything that I said wrong about Section 230, come and let me know over on Twitter and I'll tell you why you're wrong. (laughs) Oh boy, and she will. What's on the next episode? On the next episode, we're talking with two R Street experts about why a lot of people can't get homeowners insurance anymore in two states in particular, on opposite sides of the country, and with very different politics. Ooh, let me guess the states. Vermont and Utah? Okay, we don't talk about Utah in every podcast episode, but I'm thinking a bit more coastal. I know, I'm just thinking of hiking states, good states with mountains. I know it's got to be Florida and California. Exactly correct. I'll be speaking with Caroline Malier in Florida about the challenges of getting flood insurance there. And then we'll move over to California to talk to Steve Greenhut about how Californians are having a hard time getting insurance for all sorts of reasons. But I'll leave you with a cliffhanger so you come back for the next episode to find out what they are. I'll be back, Kelly. Don't you worry. I have to. It's my job. (laughs) (laughs) You're also staying in my basement, kind of like a hostage. And I love that it's your job to also do this. (laughs) Until next time. See ya, Shosh. See ya. Red Tape is produced by R Street in partnership with Pod People. To learn more about the work we're doing at R Street, follow us on LinkedIn and on Twitter. And our Twitter is at RSI. And for more resources and information on the topics we explored today, you can check out rstreet.org. Also, if you've enjoyed listening to today's episode, the best thing you can do is share Red Tape with a friend or an enemy. And if you're an overachiever, please leave a glowing review and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help us introduce the show to new listeners. I'm Shoshana Weissman. I'm Kelly Pierce. Thanks for listening. Hi, people.